I love my pastor. Um, this morning, because of the ice and a foot that's bothering me, I'm sporting my Nike tennis shoes to preach in, which will only make me more mobile, right? This is good. So, Noah, I'm changing the Nike slogan today from just do it to just preach it, okay? Um, I'm excited to share this message, the Jesus, who is the uniting thread and the dividing line. Uh, it seems like these would be opposing concepts, but they actually go very, very well together. Not too long ago, Hope and Passion Ministries traveled up towards La Trobe, and I got to speak in a church there, and afterwards, the pastor... Uh, was willing to condescend and come to my favorite restaurant for lunch, Wendy's. So over a Biggie iced tea and a Junior Bacon cheeseburger, uh, we proceeded to talk, and uh, Bria and I began to share with him some of the exciting things that are going on with our youth group here. I mean, this youth group is on fire for Jesus Christ, and they are sharing Jesus in their public schools. And I was so excited and was sharing that with him and having had a background in Christian schooling my whole life and now dealing with public school students, this has been a neat turnabout for me. And as I shared that with the pastor, he made a statement that I will never forget. He said, you know, a student could go into a public school today and name the name of God, G-O-D, and not get in too much trouble. Because if you say God, you could possibly mean the cosmic force behind the universe. You could be talking about the Muslim God, one of the Buddhist gods, or you could be talking about the Christian God. So they don't get in too much trouble for mentioning the concept of God. But let a young person walk into public school and begin to talk about Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and there's going to be trouble. Amen? Because Jesus Christ is the dividing line between the lost and the saved. You can talk about God, but Jesus Christ is the God-man who came in the flesh, the historical figure who walked this earth 2,000 years ago, lived, died, was resurrected from the tomb, and said, I am the one way, the one truth, and the one life. Amen? And so when you're talking about Jesus, you're talking about the dividing line between those who are saved and those who are lost, and that makes a huge difference. But what I'm going to do this morning is try to unpack Jesus as the uniting thread for you. And I'm praying that God is going to do wonderful things in our hearts. He has changed my heart through this message as he always does. So I'm asking you to pray with me that he will work. And for some reason, I just feel led. Rachel, would you come up and hold hands with me as I pray over this sermon? Partners in ministry. Two girls just trying to serve the Lord, huh? Okay, that's right. We're in crime. Partners in crime, she says. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and we just pray in the name of Jesus that you would speak to your people. Uh, we know Rachel's going to be going to Ethiopia, another part of the world, and I'm here right in North Huntington. But wherever we as Christians are, we want to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. So I'm asking that you open up our hearts, break our hearts where needed, help us to hear with our spirit what it is that you're seeking to say to us. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Jesus, the united thread in the dividing line. Now, this is going to come from a passage in Luke chapter 24. And everything that happens this day, this is the same day that Jesus has physically resurrected and his physical body has come out of the tomb and he's walking around the earth. Okay. These two particular disciples do not even realize that he has risen from the dead, and yet they are his disciples. 
And I think that we can identify greatly with them because how many people in the sanctuary today consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, but you at times have big doubts as to who he is and what he's doing. All right, so he can speak to us through this. So this is the day he is resurrected from the dead. And that very day, two of them, which is a reference to disciples of Jesus, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. So they've been in Jerusalem. They've witnessed the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus Christ. They're now headed away from Jerusalem, assuming that the big news is now over. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. I want to stop there and say something. Something miraculous and amazing happens every time people get together to sincerely discuss the things of God. All right? These disciples, as you're going to see, and I want to encourage you, these disciples, as you're going to see, did not even believe that Jesus had resurrected from the dead. So they weren't in exactly the right place with God that they should be, but they were at least willing to talk about the things that had happened and to discuss it. And my prayer would be that we as Christians, no matter where we are with God, and in our friends that are not saved, no matter where we are, that we would take time to talk more about all the things that have happened in the Bible. Amen? Instead of talking about the Oscars and all the reality TV shows and every crazy thing going on around us, we should take more time to talk about the things of God that have actually happened. Because when you will take time to at least discuss it, to at least consider it, to at least make it important, watch what happens. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. I want you to know something. These disciples at this point were not believing properly. They didn't have wholehearted belief yet. But notice that Jesus drew near to them. And I want the Holy Spirit to impress on your heart that no matter where you are with God right now, if you're at least here and willing to discuss the things of Jesus, he will come and draw near to you and show you who he is. This resonates with the promise that the Apostle Paul gave us in Acts chapter 17 when he was preaching. He said that God made from every nation, from from one man, every nation of men. And he determined the exact places and the times that we should live in. In other words, you're alive in the year 2015 in this particular place for a reason. And the reason is that we should seek God and perhaps feel our way towards him and find him. God puts you where you are when you're there, for the purposes that you might reach out for him. But check this out. He is actually not far from each and every one of us. I love that scripture. I've told the youth group, it's like a parallel universe. You understand? Like this is not just a regular sanctuary just filled with people. There is Jesus Christ's spirit is in this place. You may not see him with your physical eyes, but you can sense him with your spirit. And Jesus is very near to us when we will seek after him. He wants to reveal himself fully to you this morning. That is his desire. He is not far from every single person. And I want you to also take hope for those you are praying for that they might know the Lord. Yeah, we have young people in youth group pray every week for their unsafe family member. I want you to know, Jesus is not far, far from them. He just needs to open up. They need to open up their hearts to him. So here's what happens. Jesus draws near and he begins to walk with them. And I pray that you are sensing this morning that Jesus has drawn near to us 
and is walking with us in the sanctuary today. See, Jesus is no longer physically on the earth, but when he left, he sent his very spirit. And we have committed to gather in this church today to at least talk about the things of him. Amen? And when we do, he draws up alongside us, and he is sitting right beside you in the pew, and he is standing right beside me here, and he is wanting to reveal himself. So keep that in mind. Now, Luke 24, verse 16 says, ironically, even though he physically drew near to them, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Hold on one second. If this starts jiggling around, I'm going to be so distracted, so let's just get it out of the way. Okay, we're done. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, this happens a few other places in the Bible, and we don't know all the reasons why, but I'm telling you that the Bible is making clear that God himself, somehow, some way, was purposely keeping these two disciples from recognizing Jesus Christ standing right beside them. Now, he wasn't doing that for evil purposes. He wasn't going to keep himself from them forever, but for some reason, God knew that there was more of a work that needed to be done in their hearts before they were ready to receive him as they should. Anybody ever get frustrated with a loved one that hasn't received him as they should yet? You're saying, can't you understand? Can't you see Jesus? Anybody ever get frustrated with yourself because you're not grown to the place that you want to be grown? Listen. God sometimes is withholding some of himself from us as he continues to work out in our own hearts the things we need to know first. So they were kept from recognizing him for a time. And then Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? Now this is very interesting because this is Jesus Christ in the flesh. He walks up, he says to these two guys, what are you talking about? Now, how many of you in this room know that Jesus already knew what they were talking about? Okay, this is funny, but we'll get to this in a minute. So he asked them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? In other words, Jesus wants to provoke them to talk about it. He already knows. He needs them to talk about it. And one of the saddest things in the Bible is as Jesus walks up to these two disciples, and I don't know that they were both men, but I'm just going to call them guys. He walks up to these two guys. He asked them what the conversation is. They've been talking about his death. They've been talking about him being put in the tomb, the possible resurrection that they still don't believe in. And when he addresses what they're talking about, they stood still and looked sad. That's a really strange verse. Because the resurrected Christ was standing beside them. And they looked sad. Do you know that hope can be right in front of you and you miss it? Do you know that all of the hope of the entire universe was standing within arm's length of these two men and they stopped in their tracks and were sad? God has to open up your heart to the hope that's right in front of you. Amen? They stood still looking sad, and Jesus knew that they weren't understanding. So here's what happened. One of them, named Cleopas, answered him, and I'm going to give you Shelley's paraphrase of what he asked. So he's standing there. He doesn't know this is Jesus yet. Cleopas and friend are standing there. Cleopas looks at Jesus, and he says, Are you the only nutcase in all of Jerusalem who doesn't know what's happened? I mean, I'm imagining that that's what he said. 
Okay, because that's, you know, people are the same. Nothing ever changes. There's nothing new under the sun. So Jesus is saying, what are you guys talking about? And he's like, are you crazy? Are you the only person? Which, by the way, attests to the fact that the crucifixion and burial of Jesus Christ and subsequent resurrection was, historically speaking, a well-known fact. Cleopas said, you're the only guy that doesn't know what's happened? And this question amazes me because of this. Cleopas and the other disciples and the people in Jerusalem, they knew in their heads, and I'll stay with me on this one, they knew in their hard heads that he had died, that he'd been buried. They knew that when he was on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They knew it in their brains. How many of you know stuff about God in your brain, in your hard head? They looked at Jesus himself and said, don't you know And I'm thinking to myself, you are asking the only person on the face of this green earth that actually knows what happened. Not just in his head, but in his heart. Jesus actually experienced it. Cleopas, you may know that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? But Jesus knew what it felt like to be forsaken by God for you. Amen? You may have known he was beaten and the stripes on his back were done for our healing, but Jesus knew what it felt like to take that. So it's so ironic that they would ask him, are you the only one who doesn't know? And before we're too hard on Cleopas, let me just ask you this question. Have you ever, with your own heart, in a particular way, said to God, don't you get what I'm going through here, God? Don't you understand Are you the only person that doesn't know what it's like to live Shelley Prindle's life? Have you ever asked God that? He knows. Ironically, he's the only person who knows what it's like other than me. Amen? And Jesus, ever so clever. I love Jesus. He's so clever, so wise. Okay? Are you the only nutcase that doesn't know what's happened here? And Jesus calmly looks at Cleopas and says, What things? Okay, come on now. What things? Okay, now, how many of you think that Jesus knew what things had happened? We just talked about that, all right? So what is the deal here? This reminds me of God back in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve had sinned against God and they were guilty, God came down, walks in the garden in the cool of the day, and what's the first question he asked them? You remember anybody? He said, where are you? Is that because God didn't know where they were? No, God knows everything. He knew where they were. He wasn't asking Adam and Eve where they were for his benefit. He was asking them where they were for their benefit. They needed to confess. They needed to get it out of their heart. They needed to vomit that thing out. Jesus was not asking these two disciples what things because he needed to know. And I bring this down to everyday uh, terminology. I'll pick on uh, Charlie just because I like to pick on him. He's a good guy. So I can pick on him. So, Charlie, it's kind of like when he uh, comes home from school one day and Andy's home, okay, and Andy walks into Charlie's room, he opens up the door and he says, who in the world ate the last cookie out of the cookie jar? And Charlie's sitting there. He's got chocolate chip all over his face. There's crumbs all over the floor. Now, is Andy asking him that because Andy doesn't know? No, he knows. 
He's asking it for Charlie's benefit. Charlie, you need to deal with this. You need to get this out in the open. You need to understand what you've done. So when Jesus asks this question, what things, he's not really meaning what things. He's trying to work something out in the heart of these guys. It reminds me of David in Psalm 139. This is the coolest psalm. You should take time to read this sometime this week. But he starts out the psalm by stating a fact. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. Even before a word is on my tongue, you know exactly what I'm going to say, right? So he starts out the psalm by saying that. But then by the end of the psalm, you're like, don't you know what you just said, David? Because at the end of the psalm, psalm, after declaring, God, you search me, know me, you know every thought even before I say it, at the end he goes, oh, Lord, please search me and know me. You just said he did. But you want him to search you again. You want him to know your thoughts again. But he already does know your thoughts. David's saying, Lord, I want you to see if there's any grievous way in me. I know you know me, but I want you to ask me about it. I need to confess it. We need to know if there's anything wrong in me. And that's what Jesus is doing with Cleopas and friend. And that is what he's doing with us this morning. He's asking us questions, dealing with us on issues to try to get us, to deal with what we need to deal with. They answered him. They said to him, here's the things we're talking about, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the next two words, to me, are some of the saddest words in the Bible. Here are two followers of Jesus Christ, two supposed believers in Jesus, and they looked at Jesus himself, not knowing it was him, and they said, these are the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Does that bother anybody? They only saw him as a man. Yeah, here's what we're talking about, mister. We're talking about this guy named Jesus, who's a man. Yeah, albeit he's a prophet. He's a great prophet. He did a lot of great deeds, and he spoke a lot of good things before God and all the people. He's a great prophet. That's all they were really grasping him as. And I want to tell you that across the world today, in churches everywhere this morning, are tons and tons of people who only see Jesus as a great prophet. A great prophet of God, a great teacher, a great man. But they do not see him truly as the savior of their own soul. And that's what these men were not quite getting into their hearts. They were followers to some degree. Maybe we could call them religious churchgoers to some degree. But something was missing. And then he went on to say how our chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death. And they crucified him. Now watch this. Then these two said, yeah, he was delivered to death. He was arrested. He was uh, beaten. He was crucified. They put him in a tomb, and then they looked, and they said this, but we had hoped that he was the Redeemer of Israel. Where is their hope? English majors, what tense is it in? Past. See what they're saying? They're saying, hey, they put him in a tomb, they buried him. We don't know that he's really risen from the dead. And here's the problem. We had hoped that he was our savior. We had hoped that he was going to fix everything. We had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. And as good Jewish people, they said, yeah, and more than that, you know, according to Jewish tradition, maybe if you were dead three days or less, 
your spirit might be still hovering around the tomb and come back. And it, that hope's completely gone. It's been three days since it happened. This guy is dead. His body's going to start to corrupt. And we had hope that he was the Redeemer, but now our hope is gone. I want to tell you something. I didn't put it up here on the screen, but if you're taking notes, there is a wonderful verse that every Christian ought to memorize. Key verse for every believer, and it's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter wrote these words. He said, you have been born again into a living hope from the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. By that resurrection. You have been born again into what kind of hope? A living hope. The word for living that Peter uses there is the same Greek word that Jesus uses in John 4.50. When he says to the official son, I know your son is on death's door, but I'm healing him. Go, your son will live. His heart's going to beat. His blood's going to pump. He's going to be alive and well. Peter uses the same word to say your hope is alive. If you're a true disciple of Jesus Christ, hope is never past tense. You can never look up to God and say, well, I had hoped that Jesus was really going to take care of me. I had hoped. You know those 21 Christians whose blood is in the Mediterranean Sea now? Even they, when they were being beheaded, could not say we had hoped he would take care of us. Amen? He did take care of them. And we will stand with true believers in heaven no matter what they have endured. So these guys, they thought hope was in the past tense, but hope was right in front of them. They were missing it. And I want to say something to you pivotally, pivotally important this morning. You ready for this? You may feel like there is no hope for you. Hope is right in front of you. His name is Jesus. Watch this. They go on to say, moreover, and this, this kills me, because they aren't amazed that the tomb is empty necessarily. They're amazed that people would claim it was. I mean, they were disciples. They should have known this is what he said was going to happen, but they were amazed. Some women of our company amazed us, they said to Jesus. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they didn't find the body, they came back and said that they had seen a vision of angels who said that Jesus was actually alive. And some of those who were with us, and they're referring to Peter and John, went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. So now these disciples are admitting that they actually know the tomb is empty and they still don't believe Jesus has risen. Do you see what I'm saying? We have so many facts in front of us and sometimes we still don't believe. Jesus is working in our hearts. He's trying to get us to grasp what he's truly about. And here is something so pivotal. Now, I really want you to tune in and understand what Jesus is saying by this. You cannot take this for granted. So he's looking at these two disciples. Remember, keep this in mind. They don't know he's Jesus, but he is Jesus. They know the tomb's empty, but they don't believe he's resurrected from the dead. Jesus is standing in the flesh right beside them. You know, like as far as I am from you guys, okay? And He looks at them and he says, now this is what he doesn't say. He does not say, you're so foolish and slow of heart to believe. Look at me. It's me. Don't you think that's what he would say? Doesn't it feel like that's what he should say? If he's going to call them foolish, he should say, don't be such a fool. Don't be so slow to believe. Look, it's me. Can't you tell? That's not what he did. 
That is not what he did. And, and I want to say this because there are many people, and some of you may be sitting in here today, that would say, well, I'd believe in Jesus if I could actually see him. I mean, if I would have walked when he walked, then I would have truly believed. No, you wouldn't have. Because Jesus didn't say, you are foolish and slow to believe because you can't tell him right here. He said, now I'm saying this to everybody in this church, first of all myself. You are foolish and slow to believe because you don't read and trust this book. You hear what he said? He said, foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Paraphrase, all the Old Testament that we have so far. You guys did not read it, or if you read it, you actually didn't believe it. You see, up to then, the New Testament wasn't written, but they had from Genesis to Malachi. And Jesus said, you are fools, not because you can't say that it's me. You're fools because you didn't read this book enough and then believe this book enough to know what I said was going to happen. Because if you would have read it, you would have known that's what was going to happen. And do you know why that's so important this morning? Because Jesus has already come the first time, and he's about to come back the second time. And you can know it for sure. You can't see him until he gets here, and then it'll be too late. So I beg you, read and understand what the prophets have spoken. Are you with me? Amen. Thank you. Yes, that's good. Got one amen. Okay, now, all that the prophets have spoken. Here's the deal. Jesus, later on, he said in the book of John, these words are recorded. He said to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. See, here's what, here, 40 days from him talking to Cleopas, he was going to disappear and ascend up to heaven. So people today, we can't depend on his physical presence. We depend on his spiritual presence through his word. Amen? This word is critically important. Then Jesus said, If you would have read, you would have known I had to suffer before entering into glory. If you would have read, if you would have believed, you would have known I had to suffer before entering into glory. It would not surprise you that I was killed, nor would it surprise you that I'm risen from the dead. If you would have read, if you would have believed, you would have known. Amen? And there is not a person in this sanctuary today who is excused. If you have been exposed to the word of God, you must believe. And to me, one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible is Luke 24:27. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus had a copy of the scriptures with him. We know that he read in the synagogue once with a scroll of Isaiah. He probably was doing this from memory, but I just want you to picture it. So then Jesus looks at Cleopas and the disciple. They still don't know it's him. He takes out the word of God and watch this. This was probably the longest sermon ever preached, and its words are not recorded in the Bible. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Aren't you glad this morning that's not what I'm doing? I believe this was the longest sermon that Jesus ever preached on the day he rose from the dead. He walked with those two disciples. We don't know how many of those seven miles. And what he did was he began to interpret for them how the whole Bible was about him. But here's where he started. He started with Moses. So picture Jesus walking around with Cleopas and the other disciples saying, Hey guys, let's go back to what Moses wrote. And let me show you that it was really about me. They're probably like... About you? 
Okay? Now, somebody tell me, what books of the Bible did Moses write? Anybody? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So Jesus, where did he start his first sermon after his resurrection? He started it in the book of what? Genesis. And he said, this Genesis is all about me. What? And that's what I'm going to do with you this morning. I'm going to take you back to the book of Genesis. Now, I don't know until I get to heaven and can ask Jesus, but I have to believe Jesus went to Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. I believe he started way back in the beginning of Genesis, probably where he was the creator of the universe. But I'm going to pick two places in Genesis and Exodus to show you that Jesus is the uniting thread of the entire Bible. And you better get your life right with Jesus. Amen? Your only hope. I'm going to go on record as saying, your only hope is Jesus. And that whole Bible is about Jesus. Don't let anybody fool you. It's not just a guidebook for living. I mean, I know it is a guidebook for living, but I don't like that phrase. This is the living word of God himself. This is Jesus in written form. Watch this. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, after Adam and Eve sinned, and they knew their eyes were open to guilt and shame. You know, the devil told them, go ahead and eat, because God knows that you'll just be like him. If you eat from the tree, you'll know good and evil. And he was telling a half-truth. After they did sin, they would know good and evil. But... Only God can know evil without being evil. Once we knew evil, we were evil. You get it? So their eyes were open, but in a bad way. And they knew that they were naked. They were ashamed. They understood their sin after they committed the sin. And here's what they tried to do. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, those are pictures of actual fig leaves from over in the Middle East. So I want you to picture Adam and Eve have just sinned against God. They know that their souls are now damned. They feel this guilt and this need to cover and hide what they have done. And so Eve says to Adam, hey, honey, go get the sewing machine and some fig leaves and let's make some clothes to hide ourselves. Now, I know they didn't have a sewing machine, but they gathered whatever materials they did. This is the Bible. And they grabbed what they had, which was leaves, and they sewed them together and they tried to cover themselves. Nice try. Failure, complete failure, nice try. And before we laugh at honey, go get the sewing machine, we do this all the time. We sin against God, we're in rebellion, we've done him wrong, we stand opposed to God, we know it, we're guilty, and here's what we do. I'm going to go to church and give a nice big offering today because that will make me feel better, I'll cover it up. I'm going to shovel the old lady across the street out of the snow because that will make me feel better. Then I'm going to give to all the orphanages around the world. I'm going to support Rachel Wilson as she goes to Ethiopia, and that will make me feel. Hey, listen, you can't do one thing to make yourself right with God. Amen. Everybody said amen. You can't do one thing to make yourself right with God. The fig leaves weren't going to cut it. And Adam and Eve knew it immediately after they went to all the trouble of making them. They knew. Now, I believe Jesus was explaining this to them. Okay, because watch this. Next, very next verse. So now they've got their beautiful fig leaf clothing on. You know, the Nike brand of back in the day. They're walking around sporting their new clothes. And they know it's not enough. Because verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, what? Hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Hey, they had their new clothes on. They knew it didn't cut it. They were ashamed. They still couldn't stand in the presence of God. And I want to say something else very pivotally important. You ready for this? You will never, you will never stand in the presence of God with clothes of your own making. 
You will never stand in the presence of God with your own works as your righteousness. Never. And there, I, I took time first service. I'm going to do this again. I think there's a neat, very deep theological illusion here, which I'm going to share, and I hope some of you can get it. Um, they ran to hide behind the trees in the garden in order to be in the presence of God. I stand before you to say, one day I'm going to be in the new Eden. Are you? One day I'm going to be in the restored paradise. Are you? Where the, where, the, where the beautiful river of God flows from the throne and the tree of life is on either side of the river for the healing of the nations. How many of you plan to be there? Okay. When I'm there, when I'm in that restored garden, that restored paradise, there is only one place that I, there's only one reason I could be there. One reason and one reason alone that I will be there. Because I have hidden behind a tree. The tree of Calvary. I believe that's an illusion. Way back in Genesis, they tried to hide behind the trees because ultimately I will be in the restored Eden because I hid behind a tree called Calvary. Amen? Jesus is my covering. This is how we know it wasn't enough. And I'm going to show you what God himself did to cover those nasty buggers, Adam and Eve. And nasty me. You want to see what he did? They knew it wasn't enough. He knew it wasn't enough. So Jesus said to Cleopas and friend, check this out. Here I am in Genesis chapter 3. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Who made the garments of leaves? Say it for me. Adam and Eve. Wasn't good enough. Who made the garments of skin? God. Not your works. Not my works. His work. Okay? And one more thing. This doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out. If you're wearing garments of skins, guess what had to have happened? Something died and blood was shed. And Jesus walked on the road with Cleopas and friend and said, there I am. There I am. Very first sin. And God came down himself, said, what you're going to try to do to save yourself won't work, but I am going to shed the blood of some precious animal and slay it for your covering. And Jesus said, that was me, Cleopas. God was pointing to me 2,000, 3,000 years later. I was going to come onto the scene and I would shed my blood to cover all of mankind's sins. Isn't that beautiful? Garments of skins. There it is. The first illusion. I'm going to show you. Um, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.30. He, he pretty much spoke about this. He said, you, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. I want you to remember that. You are wrapped in Christ Jesus. You are wrapped in garments, not of animal skin, but you are wrapped in the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? And when I see you in the new heavens and the new earth, we will all be metaphorically hiding behind the tree of Calvary as our reason for being there. Amen? One other thing I want to share with you that I think Jesus shared with them on that day as he showed them in the scriptures everything concerning himself. Let's go to the book of Exodus. How many of you remember the Passover? 
Remember when God was trying to free his people from the Egyptians and send them to the Canaan land? I don't know why, especially women in the sanctuary, I don't know how the lice and the frogs didn't do it. It wasn't enough to get the people set free. Because I'm telling you, women, if there were a plague of lice and frogs, you know what I'm saying. Okay, but it didn't work. None of the plagues worked until the tenth plague. And the plague that God sent at the very end was the plague of the death of the firstborn. God sent the death angel to every home in Egypt, including the Israelites who were living there. And he himself sent the death angel. And he said, on this particular night, I'm going to send the death angel to every home. And every firstborn child and animal in that house is going to die unless, unless your family takes a lamb without any blemishes or defects, slays it, slices its throat, let its blood pour out into a bowl, take the blood of that lamb, take a hyssop branch, and paint the blood over the door of your house. If you do that, you'll be safe. And I believe on that day with Cleopas, Jesus said, that's me, Cleopas. Let me show you. Watch this. In the book of Exodus, we see Jesus. God said, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Now watch the next verse. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. Would anybody read this phrase with me? And when I see the blood, let's do it again. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you. And Jesus said to Cleopas, that's me. I'm the lamb. That's my blood. I'm going to tell you something right now. When Shelly Prindle is on her deathbed, I mean, I guess I shouldn't say that because I could get run over by a semi. I don't know. But let's say I linger in illness and I die on a deathbed. I want to tell you something. When the death angel comes a-knocking, the blood of Jesus Christ say, no, no, she's not dying. She's being raised to new life. Amen? Death angel's going to pass over Shelly Prindle's body, definitely, because, here's the deal, it's not the blood of a lamb. That was just an allusion in the Old Testament to what God was going to do. It's not the blood of an animal that I paint over my door. It is the blood of Jesus that I paint over my heart. Amen? That's it. The blood of Jesus painted over my heart. And Peter corroborated this in the book of 1 Peter. He wrote this 30 years after Jesus went up to heaven. He said, you know, everybody, it wasn't with perishable things like silver or gold that you were redeemed from your sinful life, from the ways handed down to you. You were bought back or redeemed with the precious blood of Christ is a what? A lamb without blemish or defect. This is the reason that John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming over the horizon, said what? Look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus walked with Cleopas and friend and said, guys, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, First and Second Kings, Ezra, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Zechariah, Malachi. And he just started flipping through and said, it's all about me. Jesus is your only hope. 
He explained everything about himself in the scriptures. Now watch what happened next. After giving them this lesson, after talking to them about these things, and many other things, I'm sure, they drew near to the village to which they were going, and Jesus acted like he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. I want everybody in the sanctuary to zone in and know this. If you're intrigued by what the Word of God has said so far, ask Jesus. Stay with me a little longer here. Jesus, I want to know more. Stay with me, Jesus. Tell me more. Bring this home. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And watch, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. After they understood what the Bible said, now they recognized him. And at that moment, what did he do? He vanished from their sight. We don't have him physically in front of us, but what do we have? His precious word. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures? And I want to ask you a question just for your own reflection. Is not your heart burning within you as you hear of Jesus throughout the Bible? Is not your heart burning within you to know that your sins can be completely covered and you can be right with God Almighty and end up in that restored paradise one day? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the other 11 disciples. And so they were all together. And the other disciples were saying, the Lord has risen. He actually appeared to Peter. And so these two then told what happened to them on the road and how they got to realize that it was Jesus when he broke the bread with them. And they talked for some time. And then Jesus appeared to them all again. Now watch the scripture. He came into the room. He appeared to them all again. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets must be fulfilled. Now, my last point in this message is this. It's not only that his death and resurrection have been fulfilled. It's not only that his shed blood is the theme of the entire Bible. But I want to tell you that every line, every word of this Bible will be fulfilled. How many of you believe it? Every word. When Jesus came into the room at the end, he added a phrase that he hadn't used before. Before he said, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained what was in the scriptures about himself. Now he adds the Psalms. And because he added the Psalms, I want to end this message with a psalm. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to look with me at Psalm chapter 2, because I want to tell you something. Every psalm is about Jesus, and every word of this psalm will come true. Psalm chapter 2. I didn't do this in the first service. I feel led to do this in the second, because there's a lot of crazy things going on in the world. I know there's kids in here, but I know that we teach the youth group, and everybody should know, ISIS is on the move. They're killing Christians left and right. Persecution of Christians breaking loose, just like Jesus said it would. We don't know how long until the end, but we know that as the end gets closer, it's going to get worse and worse. Amen? And there are going to be people and groups and nations and kingdoms and ISIS and other other groups, and they are going to do exactly what Psalm chapter 2 says. 
Why do the nations rage, and why the peoples do they plot in vain? Why do the kings of the earth set themselves up, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one? And that anointed there is in capital A because it's speaking of Jesus. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, generally speaking, the peoples of the world will say, we don't want Jesus or God or anything to do with the truth. Do you see that happening in the world today? Watch this. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. It's not he's laughing because he's, you know, wanting them to die, but he's just up there going, oh, oh. They could actually believe they could get away with this. Watch. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, look at verse 6. God says, as for me, I have already set my king in Jerusalem, my holy hill. God laughs at what's happening because he says, as for me, Jesus is already my king, and he's coming back to take over. How many of you know that this morning? Jesus is coming back on silver clouds of glory. I love that old song. Coming to take us to the place he has prepared for us. But I want to show you the end of Psalm 2. Kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. You better serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Watch this. You better kiss the Son, capital S, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For the wrath of Jesus Christ will be quickly kindled. And the only safe ones, the only blessed ones, are those who have taken refuge in him. Do you see it? You better kiss the Son. I kiss Jesus Christ in homage because he's the king, because he's my creator, and he deserves all my honor. But I kiss him as a friend because I love him, and he loves me. I'm going to tell you something. I love this book because it's the uniting, the uniting thread of this whole book is Jesus Christ. And just as he told those disciples, you should have known what was going to happen. You should have known I was going to die and come out of the tomb because I told you. I want to share with everybody in here this morning because God holds me responsible. That same Jesus will return to this earth one day soon. You have no hope unless you kiss the sun. And hide yourself behind Calvary's tree and wrap yourself in the blood of Jesus Christ. Bow your heads with me if you would. God, I don't want myself or anyone in the sanctuary to be somebody who had hoped that you were God that had hope that you were going to save us or take care of us. I want our hope to be alive. And only you can do that. You keep people from recognizing you for a time as you work in their souls, and then miraculously, by your Spirit, you open up their eyes. But the way that you do that is through the preaching of the Word of God. 
The scriptures are about Jesus. And this morning, I just want to say to everyone that is in this place, I have declared to you as faithfully as I could God's word. You must respond. You will respond. You will walk away from here having said, well, that was nice. No change in me. No response. And in that case, you will walk away hardened, more hard than you came in. Or you will respond and say, I want Jesus. And that's for us Christians, too. We may be saved. We can't hold him at arm's length. He wants heart to heart. And we can't take the word of God and and think that the Oscars and reality TV and so much work that we get caught up in and careers and, and redecorating our homes, we can't think that those things are more important than knowing the word of God and sharing the word of God with every person we can. Jesus said, this whole Bible is about me. Know it. Understand it. Believe it. Share it. Live it. It's going to cost you time and effort. But when your chance comes to share salvation with someone else, you will be so glad. So God, convict us. Wherever we need convicted, I pray right now for anyone in this sanctuary who needs to call on you as Savior and Lord. I pray for anyone in this sanctuary who has not yet ever kissed the Son and said, Jesus, wrap me up in your blood. Keep me safe so that I can be in the presence of God, so I can have relationship with him. And I pray for anyone in this sanctuary that is a Christian already, but we're holding you at arm's length. We're not loving the truth. We're not loving your word. We're not sharing the message. God, help us to kiss the Son with more passion, more love, more belief in who you really are. And while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, and I'm I'm watching, I really want everybody to respect that. If there is anyone who would raise a hand or a finger to me and say, Shelley, I've responded in some way, in a positive way. I'm responding to God in something he said to me in this message. Would you raise your hand? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Anyone else? There's something in here that Jesus said to me. And that's a wonderful testimony. When you put that hand or finger up, you're saying the Holy Spirit is real. Jesus is real. I want to respond. I want my eyes wide open to everything Jesus is. God, touch your people who have responded. May we kiss the sun. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing this last song, I want you to really, maybe you've sung it many times and never thought about the words, O Lamb of God, I come to kiss you with my love and with my response in Jesus' name.